So I'll say this, in the, in the tradition or subculture in which I was raised, quoting or often paraphrasing scripture was pretty common. Uh, sometimes it was this kind of extreme version that probably should be laughed at more than it should be supported. Uh, but often it was more sincere. That is, the words of scripture became the God talk of the church. So when people prayed, you would kind of hear scripture. When sermons were preached, you would hear scripture. When people talked about God, you would hear scripture, or at least parts of scripture, because it formed the theological kind of grammar and vocabulary of the people group. So often, the language had these kind of scriptural overtones. On the other hand, we sometimes distorted it, misquoted it, misapplied it, and did it sometimes in humorous ways, uh, finding um, either an angel or a demon behind every rock or stone. So I, I hold my ministerial credentials with a denomination called the Church of God, and their earliest statement on Scripture said this, We believe in the whole Bible rightly divided and in the New Testament as our only rule of faith and practice. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The whole Bible rightly divided, but in the New Testament as our only rule for faith and practice. It raises a few questions. What do you mean by whole Bible then? <laughs> right? That's kind of odd. And the, the fact that the early church would not have been able to recognize that in any way, shape, or form also gives me cause for pause. Not only all the authors of the New Testament, but Jesus himself, if you asked him what are the scriptures, he wouldn't have said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or First and Second Timothy, or First and Second Peter. Those, those texts weren't written yet. When they talked about the scriptures, they talked about what we say is the Old Testament. In fact, Paul will write to Timothy and say all scripture is inspired, but as he's writing that, we can only by inference say that applies to 2 Timothy, the book itself. Certainly when he was writing it, he was referring to another set of scripture. Which raises the question as to how do we see this book as a whole? So we as Christians who follow the Christian faith, who follow the Christ, do have this kind of practice of seeing the whole thing as coming from God. So another thing, um, that... Uh, rightly divided. I really like the sound of that, though. Um, we believe in the whole Bible rightly divided. I'll take the first part, and I'll just, and the second part, I'll say, well, we believe in the whole thing as rule of faith and practice. But that rightly divided bit comes as well from a passage that Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this. He says, "Do your best to present yourself to God." As one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Part of the reason I like that is that an encouragement to a church leader to rightly uh, divide or to explain the word of truth assumes the possibility that we can wrongly divide it, that we can wrongly explain it, or that we can misappropriate it. Have you ever said uh, to something to someone and they responded, give me a scripture for that? Like that? That's the oddest thing. Give me a scripture for that. As though scripture was written in order to provide proof or, or evidence for anything we might think or say. It's just that I don't think scripture was in, intended to be disseminated in 140 characters. 
uh, nothing against uh, Twitter. But even if you double it to 280 characters, which by the way, I have no idea how some people are getting to do that already. But uh, it seems like maybe I'm the only one concerned about that here. <laughs> but, but scripture comes to us, uh, as we talked about last week, in all of these different genres over all of this time, with all of these stories. Let's just take the letters. I mean, perhaps the easiest things for us to understand. We write letters. It's from one person or perhaps a group of people to another person or another group of people. It has a beginning, a middle, and end. We know what letters are right. We write letters. But how many of you, if you got a letter from a loved one, would say, hmm, I'll just kind of flip over here to the middle and start reading for a bit? On Tuesday night, we're having a, a book group, and we're making our way through What is the Bible by Rob Bell. And in the first section, one of the things he said is sometimes when we read, we need to read with altitude. That is, we kind of need to read quickly. We need to get uh, uh, the whole kind of scope. The arc of a story sometimes bends slowly, so that if we're reading at a very slow pace, which is often appropriate, we often kind of miss the, the major movement of the story. To use the old adage, sometimes we don't see the forest for all of the trees. So the Bible can be diverse, though. And I could give you a passage of Scripture for anything you want, right? If you need support for something you want to do, trust me, I can find it in the Bible. Let's look at this passage from Psalm 137. This is a, a sermon that has rarely been preached. <laughs> Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's how that psalm comes to an end. There is no resolution. This Hebrew songwriter said, I'll sing you a song. I can't wait till Babylon gets theirs. I can't wait till the Babylonian babies are killed. Apply that to your life. <laughs> Does that tell you what to believe or how to behave? Does that bring you comfort? <laughs> We're going to talk next week about how to interpret the Bible, especially about how to interpret difficult passages like this. But for today, I'd like to move on and give you what I think is the best example of, of misappropriation of Scripture. Jesus is being tested in the wilderness. And as the story goes, it's, it, you find it in Mar uh, Matthew 4 or Luke 4. As the story goes, he's tested to kind of turn stones into bread so that he might kind of feed the nation. And then uh, his response is, uh, a person doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, turn the page. <laughs> Or the, or the slide from the old film strip. <laughs> yeah, sounded like it, didn't it? What's interesting is, at least in Luke's telling of the story, the next response comes that the deceiver says, as it is written, he has given charge over you, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So jump off the temple, and we'll see, you know, that God, or everyone else will see, that God has chosen you because you can't even get hurt, right? That's, 
That's good. So if you're not sure whether or not God's calling you to something, step out to, you know, 98 or South Florida, jump out in front of the traffic, and if you live, God is for you. And if you die, you'll go to be with the Lord. So either way is good. Right? A great use of Scripture. Right? This, this is the way Satan quoted Scripture. And now here's the, here's the kicker. Technically, it's not a misquote. He quoted Psalm 91 word for word. Word for word, the deceiver in the story quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. So just because you can even quote it correctly doesn't mean it's the right passage of Scripture for what's being talked about. As, as Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Someone who works hard, labors in word and truth, rightly dividing the Scriptures. The Scriptures can be rightly divided and they can be wrongly divided. The very fact that Satan can give Jesus a scripture for why he should try to commit suicide should give us all cause for pause when we say, well, I know a scripture for that. You know, why should we just drop bombs indiscriminately on the enemy? Well, Psalm 137 says, I can't wait to see your babies killed. No, we have to find ways to kind of read these texts, appropriate these texts, and interpret these texts in ways that are consistent with the message of Jesus, with the person of Jesus. Some uh, modern examples of misappropriation. There's a story in Scripture where uh, Gideon, a judge, is being called to do something, and he's not quite sure whether or not he's called, so he kind of hangs out a fleece. In fact, that, that has become kind of common... Uh, lingo, particularly in Christian circles. I'm going to hang out a fleece. I'm going to see whether or not uh, God's really called me to do something. So I'm going to imagine an impossibility. And if it comes to pass, then God's called me to do it. Now, full disclosure, I have done this before. <laughs> not that I should have, perhaps. But often when I was trying to finish my dissertation, I would get very stressed out. And so I'd uh, ball up a piece of paper, and I would shoot for the trash can. And if I made it, I'd keep working. And if I missed it, I'd go take a break. <laughs> it took me six and a half years to write that. <laughs> a basketball player, I am not. Look, just because something's mentioned in Scripture doesn't necessarily mean it's a practice you should do. The early church felt like they needed 12 leaders because Jesus had kind of called 12 of them. One of them had ended up kind of committing suicide, so they were down to 11. So how are we going to pick, you know, the 12th, the 12th man, person? It was a man, but anyway. Um, so they prayed. They got down to two. They couldn't figure it out, so they flipped a coin. Really? Is, is that how you're going to make major decisions in your life? I can't decide whether or not I'm going to stay in Lakeland. I'm going to take a job somewhere else. I've prayed about it. I'm not sure. Let's just flip a coin. Okay. Look, just because somebody's done something in the story of Scripture doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it. 
right? Um, David uh, raped Bathsheba and then had his wife killed or her, her husband killed. That doesn't mean it's an example of what you ought to do. It doesn't have to be this quiet. <laughs> Look, there are other ones. I'll, I'll use some more light, lighthearted ones. When we read scripture, we are sometimes, I feel, overly sympathetic to ourselves. So we'll read something like, I have plans for you, plans for you to prosper and not harm. And we're like, oh, the Lord loves me. Right? I mean, the Lord was speaking to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was going to have a hard way to go. But we'll just kind of disregard the context there. But then it'll say stuff like this. Uh, we said, Lord, Lord, did we not do these mighty things for you? Casting out demons, doing mighty works. And he says, depart from me, you evil workers. I never knew you. And we're like, oh, some bad people. So how is it that when we read and it's all nice and sweet, we think it's about us. And when we read and it's kind of harsh and, and put, put offing, that's a technical term, um, it's about somebody else. So if you would... Um, I'd like for you to indulge me just a bit and let me run down uh, a short list of a few passages of Scripture that I think have been kind of mutilated in my past and we're going to try and redeem them a bit. Uh, but before we do, our whole summer series on the unusual suspects was built on this general premise that in Scripture you have competing narratives. There's the narrative of Pharaoh or the king and there's the narrative of the prophet or the coming Messiah. And that those two narratives, both found within Scripture, one is an example of kind of what to do, and one is an example of what not to do. So it's important, again, that it gets rightly divided, and that we follow the to-do bits, and we don't follow the not-to-do bits. And, and that's why we have kind of church and elders and, and people who dedicate their lives to study to kind of help us through that process. We're not, we're not alone. But here, here are just a few um, that I think have been wrongly divided. Paul will tell the church of Philippians, and this is the bit that gets uh, translated or quoted, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is particularly uh, popular in Christian art. And when I say Christian art, I don't mean like the cathedrals and and Michelangelo, and Donatello, and, you know, Bucciarelli. I'm not talking about sculptures and paintings. I'm talking about the Christian art that you, you know, you find in Christian bookstores. That kind of Christian art. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Look, Paul's in jail. Paul's been through a really hard time. He's been beaten up. Uh, he's gone hungry. He's currently in jail, and this is not the first time he's been there, right? And so when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's talking about the strength that Christ gives him in order to endure these hard times. We read that often having not gone through hard times, but having some kind of accomplishment we want to accomplish, some, some feat and so we said, well, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can climb this mountain. I can get this job. I can, you know, buy that car. But, but Paul wasn't speaking about that. 
So can God empower you to accomplish things you can't do yourself? Well, yes. Are there passages of Scripture that might even refer to such things? Also, yes. Is Paul talking about that in Philippians? Not a chance. <laughs> right? So sometimes what happens is we end up missing what's being said because we kind of, kind of meld it down into something we generally know is true. Here's another one. Um, hmm. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So, growing up in my context, that was a passage of Scripture that was often quoted before we took up the offering. Because it says, if you give, it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It's as though giving to the church is your best opportunity for return on investment. So, you know, you can talk to your you know, financial planners, that's all well and good, but you give here and we guarantee you some dividends, right? Like, this is, this is the best place to give. Charles Schwab, Edward Jones, Raymond James, whatever. Oasis. Right? We should have like Oasis Stadium. <laughs> yeah. Push out that RP funding guy over at the, uh, at the local um, civic center. So here's the problem. Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And then he says... Talking about forgiveness, when you give forgiveness, you'll receive forgiveness. And forgiveness will come back to you exponentially. That forgiveness is something that comes back, pressed down, shaking together, and running over. My friends, God has forgiven you. God has forgiven uh, me. God will forgive that fly. <laughs> and our forgiveness, as we forgive... Forgiveness will be turned back towards us. If we switch the, the um, variables, that doesn't mean that it applies. So we're going to say, okay, if it works for forgiveness, maybe it also works for money. And, and then, we, then we kind of use that as a, as a lever to kind of to get people to give. But I find that to be problematic. Because... While I have met plenty of successful Christians in my life, I've also met plenty of poor Christians in my life. Especially as I've kind of traveled globally. Do they love the Lord? Yes. Are they generous? Yes. Are they wealthy? No. I mean, really poor folks who are nevertheless generous, generous financially. So, rightly dividing that scripture, I think, tells us that when we forgive, it comes back to us in bushels full. Yes. Should we give? Yes. Is there a benefit to giving? Yes. Do you get paid in different types of dividends, perhaps non-monetary ones? I'm sure. But it's not what this passage of Scripture is about. Here's another one, also related to money. Uh, there's a story in Mark's Gospel where uh, Jesus is sitting by the treasury. That part's often overlooked, but he's sitting by the treasury where they would collect money for the temple. And it says that some people come in who are kind of wealthy and they gave a lot of money. And everybody's like, good, good news, it's going to pull us through. And then there's this widow who comes in. She's got two coins. And she gives her, her, her last two coins 
And Jesus is watching this, and he calls to his disciples, and he says, hey, fellas, come here. Look at this. This, this widow is given everything she's had. And Mark chapter 12 comes to an end. So we stop reading. And we'll talk again more about this next week as well, but chapter and verse are completely arbitrary, and we would be better off without them, I think. Because the story's not over yet, in my opinion. Uh, those things have kind of been added in. So again, growing up, I kind of always heard that the widow giving her last two coins was an example of this kind of ultimate giving. But when I looked around, there wasn't anybody doing it. Like, nobody gave everything. So, so either it was a hyperbole to kind of make a point, but it was never presented that way, or it was an example that none of us ever lived up to. And then, you know, I'd look around, and there'd be like a monastery somewhere or a convent where they made a vow of poverty, and I'm thinking, well, is that, is that my option? Like, how do, how do I follow this scripture? How, how does it get kind of rightly divided or not wrongly divided? So, <clears throat> context isn't everything, but it is a lot. And the passage right before this one is a warning to, to, to ministers who like to talk a lot. Got to be careful here. And uh, like to, you know, sit up front at the banquets. And it says, who devour widows. And then there's the story of people putting money into the treasury, the temple treasury, that is to build the nice building. And Jesus is watching. And then he says, hey, look, look what just happened. Maybe what just happened is an example of devouring widows. The next passage of Scripture, his disciples are like, whoa, Jesus, this is the nicest building I've ever seen in my life. And sure enough, it would have been. A bunch of Galilean you know, country folk making their way down to the big city to see the temple, right? One of the most magnificent buildings currently on the planet at that time. And they must have been thinking, hey, you know, if he really is the Messiah, maybe we'll get offices in there. You know, we're going to get to run this place, right? Like, wow, master, look at these stones. How impressive. And Jesus is like, it makes me sick, right? I'm going to tear this place down. Give me three days and it's going to be flat. Well, what, what's he so upset about? Does he not like pretty buildings? Or is it the fact that that particular pretty building had been built at least partially by fleecing the widows? So maybe the, the widow giving her two coins is not an example of what we're supposed to do, that is, we the church actually taking from the poor. Maybe it's an example of what we're not supposed to do. That is, maybe we're supposed to be giving to the poor, right, making sure that they don't have to choose between their medication and their food. And those of us who can't afford it, pay. What, what, if, what if that's the message? Does that sound too political to you or something? <laughs> like, like I, I really think taking care of orphans and widows is kind of like basic Christian faith. And that's a story where the widow was not taken care of. She was exploited. Yet we read that story and we think, oh, yeah. 
should give some more. I'm not saying you shouldn't give more. <laughs> but I'm saying that we should be careful to try and read well, rightly divide, and care for those who are in need and not exploit them. Like, I think that's a good Christian thing to do. There are a lot of ways that we can read these various passages of Scripture. Rightly dividing, not wrongly dividing. And a lot of these texts are difficult, like that one from Psalm 137. So how do we read these? I'm in a kind of group of people, thinkers, who believe that the primary interpretive tool of Scripture is the person and life of Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate, truest representation of who God is. And if we can look at Jesus the best we can, whether it's through our personal experience with Jesus and our own prayers and, and dreams and life, whether it's in our families or our church, through the Scriptures and the Gospels, but through our clearest picture of Jesus... We let Jesus then be the guiding lens or parameters for how we understand all of these other texts. Is it like Jesus? No. Well, maybe it's an example of what not to do. Is it like Jesus? Yes. Well, maybe it's an example of what to do, what to believe, what to say, how to feel, how to respond when we see need. It's a Christological story. Like, Jesus is the center of the story. And now that we know who Jesus is, we can read all of these texts from Genesis to Revelation kind of in the light of Jesus. And that's, that's part of what we talked about last week as we talked about what is the Bible and it's part about what we'll talk about next week when we look more closely on how to interpret the Bible. That even though it was written over a long period of time in different languages and different locations to different people and different genres with, with stories and law codes and poems and riddles and parables and letters and gospels and uh, apocalyptic dreams and visions it nevertheless has a story to tell. And all of those little pieces are interpreted best in relationship to that big story.